listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry. Welcome to this edition of Dairy Voice. I'm Joel Hastings with DairyBusiness.com. We're talking today with Don Benick, longtime owner-manager of North Florida Holsteins near Bell, Florida. He's been a longtime uh, dairy producer, breeder of registered Holsteins, and industry leader. Don, we really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us today. We're really glad to uh, get away from the winter weather and uh, get down and see us. It's uh, uh, always welcome to see Yankee friends. <laughs> Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what's going on at North Florida right today. Number of cows, and you've recently made an acquisition. What's, what's happening at North Florida today? Yeah, our current number of milking age cows is 6,500. We're milking about 5,700. We did acquire a dairy across the road from us a year and a half ago. It added uh, 1,800 cows to where we previously were. And currently, uh, we're, we're raising all our replacements and also uh, are still, even though bull studs are not buying bulls from dairymen uh, much anymore, we uh, are still raising a substantial number of bulls to supply the commercial cow market. These are all genomically tested and uh, we're... Uh, supply our customers with uh, whatever they want as far as calving ease or A2 or uh, just uh, using the genomics. And uh, uh, the top end of them uh, we are saving and uh, collecting, which I never intended to do. But we're pretty anti-intense inbreeding, and so we're trying to keep some outcross influence uh, uh, into our breeding program. I was going to, and I will ask a little bit later about some of your farming and the, your production levels, but I know as a, as a longtime breeder, just by your first answer here, we've talked about getting into the genetic program. So let's, let's stay on the, on the side of genetics. Again, you've been uh, a breeder of registered Holsteins. You've been shooting for uh, a cow, the kind of cow that works well in your operation. And I know that you've been advocating for a more moderate sized Holstein. Tell us about the kind of cow that works at your operation and why you feel that way. Yeah, our, our breeding program is essentially tied around production and health traits. And uh, we uh, are not real compromising on either. Uh, I think that among the genetic principles we sometimes forgot, the more things you breed for, the less progress you make. And I, I think we're seeing that. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, within our industry. Also, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we don't like to see intense levels of inbreeding. Uh, our, our life is dependent on uh, how these cows function and their immunity to various uh, factors and all these kind of things. And inbreeding uh, uh, certainly reduces fertility and the various uh, abilities for uh, cattle to resist stress. So uh, we we like to outcross our Holsteins uh, as much as we can, which is uh, becoming harder and harder. 
When we were looking at the cows earlier uh, today, you mentioned again about inbreeding. Using AI programs in the past, did you have cattle here that you experienced some downsides to inbreeding and, and you saw some, saw some things in your cattle that, that created that concern? There was uh, a certain amount of that, but we we have always been pretty anti-inbreeding, so our inbreeding has been pretty limited. We, we have seen some things uh, that uh, folks have really bred for that did not work here and uh, do not seem to work on, on larger dairies uh, that uh, we've resisted pretty heavily. And what sorts of things are those? Probably the thing, uh, uh, particularly as you stand and listen to some of the judges at some of the shows, particularly on a lot of the heifer classes, but also even in the cow classes, they're putting such and such an animal on top because she's bigger, taller, she's sharper, and she's deeper bodied. These are all negatives uh, in our program, and I think negative to most large dairy dairymen today. We're in an era where we've got two groups of dairymen that, that don't communicate with each other, the the real large dairies and the conventional sized dairies uh, that we all grew up with. They seem to be on pretty radically different programs and they're not very aware of uh, what each other are doing. This is partly the result of watching a good share, of, uh, a major share of the dairies over 20,000 cows in the industry today are crossbreeding. Many of them feel it's very successful and and usually it does look real successful on the F1 cross uh, and after the F1 uh, we start hearing some question marks. But what the large dairyman uh, is trying to get into his herd genetically and what uh, our conventional dairymen are doing can be very different if they're staying with the old byline. Hello, I'm Jordan Matthews from Rosie Lane Holstein's LLC in Wisconsin. If you are busy like me, you want a quicker way to get feed pricing and make a feed order with your local mills. FeedTime is a neutral platform that works with local feed mills so they can securely list feed pricing and make feed ordering easy. FeedTime is free for dairies and veteran owned. You can learn more or sign up at www.feedtyme.com backslash dairy producer and tell your feed mill about feed time. And we're back. And looking at your cows today, or having you show us your herd today, we didn't talk about beef bulls. We didn't talk about a pen full of jerseys somewhere. You've continued to stay with purebred Holsteins. Talk about those factors, why you're not doing that here, why you think others are doing it. How do you see the industry in that regard? We feel that now that we're in the genomic era, we've really got the opportunity to breed exactly what we want for if we can uh, uh, get the uh, genomics we want. Uh, among the things we, we have tested at this point in time, over 25,000 females. Among the things we're trying to breed for are cows that milk like Holsteins and tests like Jerseys. Well, when you can pick 
30, 40, 50 females out of 25,000 genomic tested ones, you can breed that for yourself. You don't have to crossbreed. But I very much understand from a simplicity standpoint how it was just easier for a lot of the large dairymen just to start jumping, dumping Jersey semen into their cows rather than trying to go all jump through all the hoops we have to go through a genomic program. But we are actively trying to build a a much tougher, much stronger kind of individual animal that would, the people who like cattle sharper uh, would not like at all because our cattle have quite a lot of muscling and we really like to see cattle that hold their body condition year round. We don't like sharp, thin cattle. Sharp, thin cattle are less disease resistant. They're less fertile. Uh, They tend to be lame easier. Work that's been done at... uh, uh, in Israel, as shown, thinner cattle tend to have higher somatic cells. Uh, uh, they don't breed back as well. They're less fertile. There's just absolutely no reason to have cows sharp and thin. Just breeding cows bigger that don't give any more milk, which there's all the studies show there's zero correlation between size and milk production and all you're doing is killing your your feed efficiency by getting them too big you're breeding animals that don't fit in the free stalls don't fit in the parlors uh, are uh, more more prone to injury and just from a the bottom line uh, are much less practical and it's unbelievable how much Uh, If you really want to get with the Packers, and I've had some opportunity to do this, you wonder where our bull calf market went. It went right with the bigger, taller, sharper, deeper-bodied individual because to a Packer, looking at a Holstein steer, bigger, taller, sharper, deeper-bodied are extreme faults. They don't want those kind of cattle. There's no reason for the dairyman to have those kind of cattle because they don't make him any money that packers are having major problems. We're having major problems with Holstein steers because of their length and they would tend to be much longer than the beef types and they'd end up dragging on the kill floor and making the inspectors stop the line and this line and these big plants that handle four to five thousand steers a day the typical cost of running that line is between 33 and 60 thousand dollars an hour with when you're putting five thousand animals through a plant if they have to stop the darn line because an animal's dragging on the floor that uh, at thirty to sixty thousand dollars an hour they're losing big time money and they just don't want these long steers and almost every packer there are a few minor exceptions refuses to take Holstein steers anymore because they don't like the way that they've they've developed. The only place you can ship Holstein steers is is now to cow plants. Cow plants don't grade them. There's no choice and no prime and uh, so forth that you end up getting cow price. So rather than on a live animal 
rather than getting 90 cents or a dollar a pound, you're getting 50 cents a pound. Or on the rail, rather than getting a dollar or 60, 70 cents a pound, you're, you're getting more like a dollar 10 a pound. So there's no way that someone feeding and fattening steers can survive and it's just that's why no one will buy Holstein bull calves anymore the packers won't take them and it's because exactly the opposite animal from what they want is the animal you see topping our typical heifer show ring. Well with that in mind and the downside of what you're describing you are doing a good bit of embryo transfer so tell us the candidates on the female side for the animal's that you want to uh, send send out for for embryo transfer? What which I won't say what's your average animal, but what are you looking for in the female that you're going to flush? We're picking our our highest producers with the best health traits that hold their body condition year round. We want medium size. Uh, we definitely don't want big ones, but we want cattle that breed back, cattle that are very disease resistant, that are easy calving, that are low on stillbirths, low on somatic cells, uh, that basically carry the factors that uh, determine bottom life profitability. I've got two, th- two questions, I guess, to follow up. Where, where does the genomic number fit in? Where does, where does genomics for the, uh, for the TPI fit in? So when, okay, now we don't use any of the commonly used indexes. We use an index of our own that's totally production and health rates to, to select. So uh, we, would be, we would be quite different from TPI uh, and net merit. TPI, I believe, is like 20... 8% uh, based on confirmation and type traits and net merit would be around 17%. In our opinion, that's lowering our progress by 28 and 17% versus breeding totally for production and the health traits that pay the bills. As we drove through the through the barns, we saw sound cows that had good udders and good feet and legs. And oftentimes when you're talking with a dairyman about what does he want, udders and feet and legs crop up pretty early in the conversation. And I haven't heard you use those terms at all. How, how do you see that? We feel that we have ended up with better udders by breeding for productive life than uh, we would have if we had bred for udder composite. The correlation of stature and udder composite is 0.57. So that means if you breed for udder composite, you are breeding to increase your stature substantially. The same with the feet and leg. The stature, the correlation of stature with foot and leg composite is a 0.46. That means if we bred for foot and leg composite, we would be again increasing our stature substantially as a result of breeding uh, for the foot and leg composite. The reason we want good udders and good feet and legs is so the animal will be productive longer. We feel the way to get that is to breed for the animals that are productive longer rather than breeding for some side trait to try to make them that way. 
I'm glad that you're explaining this. Uh, one of the things we've always enjoyed, Don, about your uh, talking at meetings and, and uh, having hallway conversations is, is your clear and, and straightforward presentation. So I'm glad you've shared that with us. I'd like to circle back to your issue of the, the very large herds versus what I'll call the more traditional size herds and, the, and what you call the split in the industry. Dairymen not working together in the face of consumer concerns, in the face of uh, animal welfare issues and the like, can be problematic for sure. Where are we headed in the dairy industry as, as you look, at, look down the road a little bit? I think, yes, we're, we're going to continue to see the trend toward larger dairy herds, but I still feel that the right moderate-sized dairyman can still function and perform. He just has got to evolve to using some more modern practices. I really hate with the number of dairies that we've seen go out of business in the last two to three years that we see a lot of this happening in the areas where the agricultural land is really only suited for dairy. Many of these smaller herds that make a great contribution to those uh, communities are not there anymore and both as a function of, of where they've gone and the type of animal and how they're feeding them is put together that with breeding a really modern, high-productive, high-component animal with using uh, the grasses that many of them can grow so well and use them efficiently, I think they can be competitive uh, to breed for the style of cow that we've been talking about. The bigger, taller, sharper, deep-bodied is going to break them. What are the key points, the key suggestions, the key recommendations that you would make then for maybe any dairyman who wants to build a good business and stay in business as we look ahead? I think, yes, we've talked about the emphasis uh, on genetics, and, and I think that's uh, real important. I, I think that there's the potential and possibilities for A2 milk is uh, is very strong. Uh, we don't have the documented large studies, but we there are a lot of people, particularly of uh, Asian and African descent, who uh, upon trying A2 milk find that they are much more comfortable with it. And of course, their ancestors uh, would have only had A2 milk, whether it be from water buffaloes or zebu or goats or sheep. They seem to be, many of them, uh, intolerant to milk, that uh, getting milk back into these populations and getting milk, which I, I think includes uh, the whole milk part, which... Uh, we went the wrong way on. It got kids to uh, drinking less milk. And one of the things that people don't realize is the satiety value of milk. That if they drink a glass of milk, they're not near as apt to overeat on a lot of the other high sugar foods and high salt foods they get in their diet. Much as if they have a Pepsi or Coke. And I, I think we need to get the trends in our national diet uh, back to being much healthier because this uh, every uh, 
reading that we're seeing as the trends toward obesity are getting greater and greater. And it's uh, unbelievable how uh, younger generations literally have a lower life expectancy than uh, the current older people. Certainly we can say, or at least I would say, that uh, dairy has received way too much of the blame for that situation. And happily, research is showing that full-fat dairy can play a very helpful role in a, in a proper body weight and, and good growth and longevity. And I think some of the recent studies of, of chocolate milk uh, for people after a workout, athletes after a game and that kind of thing, people are finding to, uh, they're back up to feeling rested much sooner with chocolate milk over the other high sugar beverages that are frequently offered. And, and I think the... Uh, study done recently in Scotland on testing uh, various drinks for the rehydration value that in testing a wide variety of drinks water came in at number 10 and skim milk came in at number one and a uh, a drink that was essentially amounted to an IV was number two but whole milk was number three, is if you wanted to get rehydrated fast. These are things uh, we should uh, be making people familiar with. Let, let's shift gears a little bit, but stay on, on uh, milk marketing and consumption. We were talking about the dairy export situation, and in fact, the recent apparent approval of USMCA, the NAFTA two, if you will, you offered some thoughts on your view of the export market, and you've had some experience with uh, with the Export uh, Council. Yes, uh, I, I used to serve on the Export Council under Tom Suber, but also happened to be uh, in Canada giving some talks at the time that it was being announced that NAFTA was very likely coming to an end some three years ago, and the processors were in the process, and this happened to be in Oxford County in that region of Ontario, that the processors in that area were asking local dairymen if they wanted to make that milk because it appeared that the milk they were buying in great quantity in uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and New York was uh, going to be... uh, having a tariff put on it uh, and being restricted to them if NAFTA was shut off, that NAFTA had allowed uh, these ultra-filtrated products and so forth to come from those three areas. And uh, it was supporting like a hundred and some dairymen in, in Wisconsin and substantial numbers in Minnesota and New York that they weren't going to be able to... Uh, procure this UF product from the from the U.S. anymore that uh, they were what was the sense of, of, of looking at the local Canadian milk as a possibility and uh, the group of young Dutchmen I was with were really gung-ho on making that milk for them so they agreed to put together the class seven and uh, make the milk locally and not to take the risk of uh, having an unavailable supply. And I'm sure contrary to all heavily they were bad mouthed and everything by 
Many of our milk people in the U.S., if we'd been in the same situation, uh, we would have made all the same decisions. Thank you, Don. As we wind this conversation up, do you have any other uh, thoughts as you look uh, down the road for uh, not only your dairy, but for your fellow dairy producers? Maybe topics we haven't touched on or a parting shot, if you will. Yeah, and and I know, again, uh, hit back slightly on the large versus small dairymen. And I started out one cow at a time uh, and grew. And so I spent a good uh, a couple of decades or a decade and a half at what would be today called a small dairyman. Understand that life very well. Was uh, even uh, was the only one uh, on the farm uh, a good share of the time without help. And then went to high school boys and that kind of thing. So have a little understanding of the small versus large. And one of the things uh, has chased our youth away from the small dairies is the hours and the lack of free time and everything that's demanded. One, one of the good things about larger dairies is it lets people, if they really like cows and being working with cows and that kind of thing, Large dairies do allow them to work with cows in uh, very substantial ways and still get time off and have family time and those kind of things. And that's that's been a big part of why we've seen dairies get larger. And, 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 and I think it's been, e- even if we see a bunch of negatives, that's been a good part of it that uh, a lot of our really talented, capable people have been able to go that way and still have a family life. That's a, that's a very good thought. We're going to finish up here with Don Benick at North Florida Holsteins near Bell, Florida. Don, we appreciate you talking with us today on Dairy Voice, and we thank you for sharing your ideas with us. And thank you for the opportunity.